evidence and answers. If God is the perfect creator, how do we explain junk DNA? Do beneficial mutations prove Darwin's theory? Do similar biological structures point to a common ancestor? These are some of the alleged proofs scientists point to in supporting Darwin's theory of evolution. How do we address these challenges? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucharan. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. The last time we were together, Pat and fellow Evidence and Answers research staff member, Dr. Evan Kawamura, began an interview addressing common arguments presented by evolutionists. Remember, if you missed any part of this broadcast, head on over to our website, that's evidenceandanswers.org, and look up the title, Refuting Evolutionists' Arguments. You can download it or listen online. Today, we will conclude this discussion. All right, Evan, so tell us a little bit about the general theory of evolution as defined uh, by several prominent scientists here. Yeah, so you could say it's the theory that all living forms in the world have arisen from a single source, which itself came from an inorganic form. But ironically, the evidence which supports this is not sufficiently strong to allow us to consider it as anything more than a working hypothesis. So tell us, Evan, you know, what is the necessary ingredient for evolution here? You have to have an increase in genetic information. But similarly, just like the fossil record, we don't have any examples of new information that's added to the genes. Instead, we have many examples of sorting or losing information. Yeah, expand on that a little bit. What do you, what do you mean that there's no information of adding to genes and instead what we have is sorting and losing information. What do you mean by that? So there's the staph bacteria and it became resistant to penicillin by mutation. So if you look more deeply, you realize that this mutation actually disables the control gene, which is a loss of information. And so it causes the bacteria to produce penicillinase, which is an enzyme that destroys penicillin. So because the mutation causes staph to overproduce this enzyme, it makes it very resistant to large amounts of penicillin. So this is a benefit from a loss of information, but this is not a new information example. Yeah, so that, that's a great example here. You didn't attain new information here. Instead, there's a loss of information here in this mutation. So it's not an adaptation to a more greater complexity. Is that what you're saying? Right. It's not like the staff learned how to fight against penicillin. It just so happened that it got kind of lucky. By turning off this control gene, then it produced too much penicillinase and it ends up helping the organism survive against penicillin. So it just got lucky. Yeah, so you didn't add anything new, you took something away. Right. Now, another necessary ingredient for evolution is how non-living chemicals form living cells by time and chance. That's another missing component, isn't it? Yep, exactly. So as we said before, we don't have any experiments or evidence that non-living chemicals can form living cells. So because we have this major data gap in evidence, again, evolution should be classified as a hypothesis or a conjecture. All right, so Evan, you're saying that's why evolution is more hypothesis or conjecture. 
And you already mentioned, but maybe it's time to repeat what Richard Hutton, a PBS producer, stated on this issue. Yeah, he was asked the question, what are some of the larger questions which are still unanswered by evolutionary theory? So he responded that there are open questions and controversies. The fights can be fierce. Just a few of them, the origin of life. There is no consensus at all here. Lots of theories, little science. That's one of the reasons we didn't cover it in the series. The evidence wasn't very good. Now, Evan, another arena we hear a lot about as another evidence or proof of evolution is rapid speciation. First of all, explain to us what that is, rapid speciation, and and does it indeed support or does it go against Darwin's theory of evolution? Yeah, it's the idea that you can get a lot of new species in a very short amount of time. But this disproves evolution if rapid speciation is true. The reason is evolutionists want gradual speciation, right? takes millions of years, slow, gradual changes. So if you can get examples of rapid speciation in a short time, then this will disprove evolution because you can get new species very quickly instead of millions of years. So for example, there's a mosquito species in the London underground train system called the tube. And they found that rapid speciation occurred in only a hundred years, not millions. And what they found is this new mosquito species cannot interbreed with the parent population because they had a loss of genetic information, no new information. Another example would be like the groups or ethnicities of people when they spread out from the Tower of Babel after God confused their languages, like in Genesis 11. Oh, so explain to us a little bit more then how that doesn't support evolutionary's case. Yeah, so if you can get new species in a very short amount of time, then that disproves evolution. Oh, because evolution takes, it takes a long process through small variant uh, mutations that cause beneficial variations, and uh, it's passed on to the next generation, to the next generation. So you're saying rapid speciation would go against Darwin's theory. Yeah, so you need two ingredients for evolution to be true in this case. So it needs to take a really long time, millions of years, and there has to be new information passed down from the generations. So like if an example would be like if you had Hapa children and they could slowly grow wings or like another finger or another leg or something, something very small, gradual, that will benefit the organism and has new information something like that. But we don't see examples of that. So in this mosquito example, we see it happen in just 100 years, very short, and there's actually a loss of genetic information, no new information. So those are two things that kind of cancel or disprove evolution in this case, a short amount of time and then a loss of genetic information. Yes. Now, one of the mechanisms for Darwin's theory of evolutionary change and creating new species is mutations. And one of the things we know in the scientific arena is that uh, the vast, vast majority of mutations are not beneficial. Most of them are harmful. I know I have friends who work in neonatal medicine there. And if they ever have to go up to a parent and say, you know, ma'am, sir, your child has a mutation, that's not good news. It's always bad news. So there are very few mutations that we could say are beneficial. However, there are some mutations that evolutionists point to and say, look, we've got some beneficial mutations here. 
So do some of these examples that they point to of beneficial mutations support or do they not support Darwin's theory of evolution? Yeah, so the beneficial mutations that we do see, they're all from a loss of information, not new information. So that already disproves the ideas of evolution. So we look at some examples. So there's a sickle cell anemia. It's when hemoglobin forms the wrong shape and cannot carry oxygen in the blood. So this is a blood disorder because of a loss of information. But there's actually a benefit. So because it's shaped funny, it can resist the malaria parasite. So we get a nice benefit from loss of information. So we get a little bit lucky. The other one is the staph bacteria we mentioned where it overproduces penicillinase, an enzyme that destroys penicillin. But this happens because the mutation disables a control gene. So it's a benefit from a loss of information. And we see something similar to TB or tuberculosis. It becomes resistant to antibiotics, but not because it gains new information, but because it loses information. Yes. Now, Evan, let's talk about the idea of a common ancestor. According to Darwin, Darwin's tree of life, we should be able to trace and look at the fossil record and trace our genealogy back to a common ancestor. Now, tell us a little bit about what do you mean when you say uh, a common ancestor? Yeah, so Darwin believed that if you had common structures like fingers, hands, feet, that this came from a common ancestor instead of a common creator or designer because he didn't believe in God. So the common designer kind of makes more sense because the genetics and the information are very different if we compare similar structures like hands. So for example, humans and frogs, they both have five digit hands. The structure looks similar if you look at their development during gestation, but the biological processes for developing their hands are very different, complete opposite. So for human fingers, it forms because cells die. And then the frog hands, it grows outward. So imagine you take like a pancake and then you smash it or you make cuts in it. And then that will form your human fingers. But for frogs, it's like you take a pancake and then you stretch it to form fingers. So you have two very different biological processes. Regarding common designer examples, instead of a common ancestor, you can think about like if you were someone or know someone who makes cars. You can have a lot of similar parts in different cars, but that doesn't mean that all cars came from the same car. You just have a common design. So there's like an engine, there's headlights, there's blinkers, sometimes there's AC, right, if you want to stay cool, especially in Hawaii. There's doors, windows, trunk, things like that. We also see that structural engineers use similar material for different buildings. Concrete's really good, for example. We see hemoglobin is a complex molecule that carries oxygen and blood and makes the blood look red. This appears in many different kinds of organisms, but doesn't mean that they all came from the same organism. They just happen to be designed by the same person. You can look at vertebrates. They all have backbones. Doesn't mean that they all came from one animal with a backbone. Yeah, so Evan, what you're saying here is that because there's some similarities in structure, it doesn't mean we all came from that one particular form. When an engineer sees a design that works pretty well, they can take that particular model and use it to create many different forms. But it doesn't mean they all come from that same ancestor. That's what you're saying, right? Right. Another example would be like Noah's Ark, the world's first boat. The dimensions for the Ark 
are just right that a lot of people design ships based off of those ratios. Now, Evan, another argument is that there are what we call bad designs. For example, junk DNA. And the argument usually is if God is this perfect and uh, creator and he, you know, created all things and he designed all things, why do we have, quote, bad designs like junk DNA and other, quote, useless organs? Yeah, even though this sounds like a bad thing for Christians or creationists, this is actually a good thing. So let me back up. Evolutionists will describe DNA with no known functions as junk. But sometimes we do find uses for junk DNA. So we see this in like the overall genome structure, regulation of genes, and then rapid post-flood diversification, which leads to like ethnic groups after the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. But there are a lot of examples of bad design, but they're not helpful for evolution because survival of the fittest should have weeded out all of these junk or useless organs, DNA, or biological functions. So instead, as Christians, we can say that these organs or functions or bad designs might have degraded over time because of the fall, or simply that we just don't know their functions yet. So maybe Adam's appendix was useful a long time ago. The spleen used to be useless until recent studies. So it's good for healing after heart attacks, and it's good for the immune system, inflammation, healing, recycling old blood cells. And then the spleen actually gets bigger when you're sick because it's producing white blood cells. Yeah, so Evan, we talked about Darwin's theory and how it's lacking evidence. Uh, in fact, some of the evidence goes against Darwin's theory. Tell us, why do you think this remains the dominant theory of science? And it really remains unchallenged in the academic arena. Why is that? It's a really good way of explaining how life works without God. And if you can take God out of the equation, out of the picture, out of design, out of everything, then you can get lawlessness, you can get disorder, you can get more chaos, and then morals, absolutes, what's right, what's wrong, it all means nothing. And that's ultimately what I think they're trying to push. That's their secret agenda is that if we can get rid of God, then we can get rid of the laws, get rid of absolutes. We can do whatever we want. So then we become God. We design, we figure out, and we choose how we live. We're no longer accountable to any higher intelligent beings. Yeah, it goes back to Romans chapter 1, doesn't it? For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and in their foolish hearts were darkened. And so they suppress the knowledge of God that is innate within all men and women. And I think one of the reasons it remains such a hotbed issue that if you challenge the theory, you get such a hostile response, I think is because if Darwinism is not true, then really what's your other alternative? It would right. be God or intelligent design, which is something I think uh, they do not indeed want to entertain. Well, I think that if you at least don't want to mention God or an intelligent creator in the biology textbooks, you should at least mention the shortfalls that you mentioned here of Darwin's theory. Isn't that good science that you mentioned, not only the evidence you have, but where the theory is also lacking? Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes the evolutionists will fact check themselves. So there's an example in Jonathan's book, if you go to chapter 8, if you're following along, 
he talks about whale evolution. And so the idea was that whales came from land mammals. But if you look at the fossil records of the animal called the Ambulocetus, supposedly it's the missing link. So it has like flippers and it looks like it could be sort of amphibious, swim, walk on land. So an evolutionist called, yeah, Kenneth Miller, who's a Christian evolutionist, he was on the PBS show. He claimed that this animal could move easily both on land and in water. And so he had this drawing of a complete skeleton and a reconstructed animal. But this is actually kind of misleading and deceitful because he was fact-checked by his fellow evolutionist, Annalisa Berta, and she said that since the pelvic girdle is not preserved, there is no direct evidence in the amblocetus for a connection between the hind limbs and the axial skeleton. This hinders interpretations of locomotion in this animal since many of the muscles that support and move the hind limb originate on the pelvis. So in other words, without a clear fossil pelvis for this creature, it shows how the hind limbs could attach if we had the fossil. But because we don't have that piece, that bone, we can't say for certain that the amblocetus could both walk on land and swim in water. So not only do we see missing links, but we also see missing bones in the fossil record. Yeah, so Evan, you know, as we bring this uh, show to a conclusion here, what advice do you have for parents and students who are going into the sciences where they are going to be steeped in Darwin's evolutionary theory? But not only those in the sciences, those going, you know, because Darwin's theory is what we call a meta-narrative. You know, it's the all-embracing story of reality many see. And so it'll affect those in religious studies. It'll affect those in psychology, in sociology, uh, in all the different arenas. So what words of advice can you give to students going into these academic arenas where they're going to be steeped in Darwin's theory of evolution? Yeah, it's kind of like a weed. So the best way to attack it is at the root. If you kill the root, then the whole thing will die. Okay, so evolution contradicts the biblical record of a finished creation. God rested on the seventh day, stopped creating. So God's creative processes are done. However, evolution requires a continuous creative process. Evolution also contradicts the doctrine of fixed and distinct kinds. Evolutionists believe there's that common ancestor, and so all life forms are not equivalent, even if they have similar components. So instead of a common ancestor, there's many repeatable and observable examples of biogenesis, the idea that life begets life, or like begets like. Humans have babies, dogs have puppies, cows have calves, and so on. Evolution also contradicts God's omniscience because evolution requires random chance and errors. But God was and is orderly and not an author of confusion. We also see that evolution contradicts the second law of thermodynamics about the universal principle of decay. So God cursed the ground with thorns, thistles, and weeds in Genesis 3.17. And all of creation is waiting to be released from death, like in Romans 8.21. And there are numerous and repeatable observations of degeneration, disintegration, and increasing entropy, which seem to follow the second law of thermodynamics, which contradicts evolution. So the belief that man came from goo or a pool of molecules ignores all the genuine evidence and observations of nature. And finally, evolution produces anti-Christian results. So here's where all the weeds come up. So evolution implies corruption, but a corrupt tree cannot produce good fruit as Jesus told us in Matthew 7, 18. 
evolution contains several anti-Christian themes such as atheism, communism, relativism, racism, and anarchy. It also breeds very social problems, very dangerous social problems that give you a purposeless society. Things like suicide, promiscuity, abortion, drug, or chemical abuse. Because evolution shows that life doesn't have any meaning, and so man can think of themselves as whoever they want, which can lead to low self-esteem, animalistic behavior, and depression. So those are some of the consequences that we see from evolution. Very anti-Christian. So as a parent, do you want your children to have low esteem, self-esteem, animalistic behavior, depressed? Probably not. And in Christianity, we see that you are created, loved, and designed for a strong purpose. And I think that's much better of a comforting story to believe in. Yes, and I think, you know, as your student is getting into the sciences at the junior high and high school level, uh, I think it'd be great if they were equipped to understand the arguments for the existence of God, intelligent design, and the evidence for, you know, the veracity and truth of the Bible and how the Christian worldview best explains the data of science that we have out there. So I think getting equipped in what you're talking about today, Evan, showing how we can meet the challenge of evolution, how the evidence really isn't there to support the theory and the flaws, of, and, and to know the flaws of Darwin's theory as you're looking at the data there, and how the Christian worldview best explains the data of science there. So I would equip your student and also you as a parent and youth pastors who are out there listening to be equipped to answer the challenges that arise as your students engage in the world of science. I recommend the book that Evan promoted here, Refuting Evolution by Jonathan Sarfati. Uh, also another great book is, and a classic, Defeating Darwinism by Philip Johnson. And there's some great websites out there evidence and answers of course i hope is one of them that you will go to we have a whole host a team of scientists who speak on this area reasons to believe is another great science team that we work with together and also i would highly recommend that you come to an evidence and answers conference in fact we're having one this coming year uh, in february 2023 hopefully this show airs before then where we'll be having some top philosophers who speak on philosophy of science and top scientists. Dr. Hugh Ross and others, Dr. Evan Kawamura will be there as well. So come to our conferences. The one coming up this year in 2023 is Christianity and Science Connecting the Cosmos with the Creator. It's going to be a great conference. If you're listening to the show after the conference, go on our website at evidenceandanswers.org and listen to all the seminars that took place during our conference, including uh, seminars presented there by Dr. Evan Kawamura. So Evan, uh, we want to thank you for being with us, of course, always here at Evidence and Answers. Thank you for the research and the writing that you're doing for us. And if people want more information on the things that we have covered, the articles that Evan has written, just go to our website there at Evidence and Answers. Dot org. So, Evan, thanks for being with us. We look forward to having you again here on Evidence and Answers. Yep, thank you. Well, 
our time today has come to a close. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you have the opportunity to head on over to our website, that's evidenceandanswers.org, you'll find we have a wide variety of different topics that will make for an incredible conference series. So if you would like Pat to speak at your church, your Bible study, or even to schedule a conference at your church or location, give him a call in Hawaii. That number is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org. Be sure to use our search engine for available resources. We have everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So share our website with those around you. To keep quality broadcasts like Pat's on the Air, we rely on generous financial support from you, our listeners, for the opportunity to partner with us. Once again, we'll direct you to our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Evidence and Answers would like to thank one of our sponsors, the Honolulu Christian Church. If you don't have a home church and are looking for a great place to connect and grow in Christ, check out the Honolulu Christian Church. For service times, log on at honoluluchristian.org. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucaran. <laughs>